Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Casey Blake about sex education from a registered counselor perspective. Casey Blake, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about sex education from a registered counselor perspective. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Oliver. Uh, always a pleasure. I mean, uh, I think your topic is definitely one of those more edgy, I wouldn't say edgy, but definitely not something that, you know, most practitioners talk about. So very, very honored to have you on the show and talking about this. And uh, I mean, maybe to kick it off, you know, tell us in your, in your words, I mean, what is sex education? Sex education is actually misnamed because when people say sex education, a whole bunch of things come to mind. Oliver, what comes to mind for you? And then I'll tell you what often comes to mind for other people. I just remember being in in, in standard five or grade seven and the teachers calling you together and say, we have to talk about sex education now. And they tell you about the, you know, the, the boys and the girls and the differences and all of that stuff. And that was my idea. And I think that kind of still sticks right now. Mm. A lot of people who received some form of sex education had something similar to you. People who have not received sex education often think that sex education literally educates children about how to have sex, which is absolutely not the case. So the reason I say that sex education is actually misnamed, sex is the smallest part of sexual education. A more accurate term maybe would be relationship and interpersonal education, because sex education is more about, you know, recognizing the relationships you're in. What is the relationship you have with your own body? Do you know how your own body functions so that you know if something's normal for you or if something needs to be checked out by a medical professional? Um, you know, how are the relationships you're in with your friends, your family, your siblings, your community? Do they, how do they make you feel? Do they make you feel good about yourself or do they make you feel horrible about yourself? What could this mean? What is healthy engagement? How does abuse manifest in different ways? Not to teach children what abuse is, but to teach children how to recognize what abuse is. Um, and then once we understand what consent is and how bodily autonomy works, and I actually get to decide who touches my body, how, when, where, why. Um, no, you can't just pull up my skirt because you're in my class and you think it's funny. That's a violation. All these different things are part of sexuality education. You know, you can't just... I, I know so many men who grow up and socialize as boys who ball tap each other and they think it's the funniest thing. So for those who don't know what a ball tap is, it's when someone walks past you and literally gives a hopefully light, but often not so light smack on someone's testicles. That is incredibly painful. Mm. Um, and and not and not consensual at all. It's incredibly violation and it's actually technically sexual assault. Um, so like being able to navigate these things and be a, give la give children language for what they are experiencing is the biggest part of sexuality education. And then we finally get to if you're going to be having sex, which is an assumption we make about people eventually, not as their kids, but when they're ready. These are the ways you can have sex and stay safe emotionally. These are the ways you can have sex and stay safe physically. Now, what I've just described is what is called comprehensive, accurate sexuality and relationship education. It is very seldom what people receive. 
Mm, mm. I, yeah, I can see that. Hey, I mean, I, and and even now as a as a as an adult, I mean, I can well, adult by you know a long stretch as well. You know, with two kids and all of that stuff. I mean, I still can't think of a resource that people go to. And then, then I mean, that's the reason we started talking initially was because when when you told me what you did and you know what your area of interest, I was like absolutely amazed. You know that someone was doing this. You know, especially from a healthcare practitioner point of view. And because no one does this, I mean, like not not in schools, not your parents, you know, no one speaks about this stuff. And and well, even right now, you know, it's still such a taboo s- subject. Well, the thing is that that's what miss. I mean, yes and no. Not a lot of people are doing it, but there are many companies who do this in schools that are resourced out to them. There are lots of professionals who provide, you know, how to have the birds and the bees talks to parents and other professionals. Um, I've just gone a step further and set to say that this is not just a two-hour conversation about how to talk about birds and the bees. This is systemic, and we have to think about it systemically, and we have to think about it interrelationally as human beings. Like, as, as an adult and a parent with two children, like, you navigate sexual edu- like relationship and sexuality education topics all the time. You navigate consent with every single interaction you have with your children but do you know that? Do they know that? Can they express when they're uncomfortable? Yeah, and 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 I think I mean, like you know, by having more of these conversations, obviously it's going to empower children, you know, to not be victims of when mm-hmm. something does happen and there's a predator around and all of that stuff. You know, you can actually see, yeah, or they can actually, you know, tell that. But I, I do agree with you. I think the schools have done a lot better than when I was in school. Um, and Some schools have. Yeah. I mean, the, the the government has actually done great work with introducing the scripted lesson plans, which are v- widely and freely available on their website for any concerned parent to look at both the teaching plan and the, the student plan, like the teacher support and the student plan. It is so brilliantly consent-based. Um, mm. But, and at least in government schools, they have a legal requirement to do these lessons and hopefully the teachers are trained and are supported. That's the biggest downfall is the teacher training um, and teacher support. But when we go into private schools, they tend to forget that they are also governed by the Department of Basic Education, even if they're private. Um, And and a lot of schools, because there's no uh, standardized testing for life orientation and life skills, each school gets to decide on their own test and each school um, and province sets their own exams, which means that schools can get away with not talking about these things and write an exam assessment that doesn't involve these things, um, which only puts their children at risk, but they're terrified of teachers having a freak out because somebody misrepresented a learning plan somewhere. And now we've got, you know, oh my goodness, sexuality education is teaching our 10 year olds how to masturbate. No, they're just mentioning that if the kids are already masturbating, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. And I am saying this without even having checked that particular lesson plan. Mm. I have only skimmed through a few of the grades and I haven't looked at the grade four curriculum. Mm. Um, but from based on what I've seen, that is not what we are telling children. Okay. That, make, that actually makes sense. And um, even in religion, I mean, religion doesn't really, I mean, like, you know, they don't, yeah, they don't teach, you know, their congregations or, you know, people around it as well. So it's interesting. I mean, I grew up in a Christian faith and I think, you know, you brush through it. I mean, obviously the broad strokes of what, 
you know, like no adultery, no fornication, all of that stuff. But, you know, like they don't do anything more than that except tell you how, you know, how bad things are. Uh, so, yeah, I think very needed. Um, and I think, you know, the, you know, the, I watched, I don't know if you ever watched the the Viking series. You know, the Viking series, yes. them as a, them as a, as a society, they were so accepting of this. And, you know, like it, it was always like weird. It's almost like even the kids knew, you know, that the parents are going to be having sex, you know, and that's like, it was known. Whereas now it's like almost still like, you know, that taboo kind of, you know, topics and, and aspects. Interesting. Mm. I mean, linked into what you've just said is, is uh, that we do such, we do children and adults such a disservice when we don't unpack what is fornication and why, if according to religion, if that's the, the way you need to go about it, why are we avoiding it? What is adultery? What are the consequences? Why is it bad? Not just don't do it, but why? Mm. I mm. think that we, we forget to provide the why, which does a huge disservice for people and leads them to try and figure out all their own sex education, often using porn as a subsidy as a substitute, which it is not. Porn is like learning how to relationship by watching days of our lives. Mm, mm. Yeah, I know. And 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 also, I mean, again, because I'm speaking to someone like yourself, you know, you know, a healthcare practitioner, it's like the 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 guilt and the the stigma and the the you know your own like negative feelings because you're actually you know using those type of channels and you're not you know like getting trained properly or someone telling you this is how it works that must be quite hectic as well you know because like you said everyone's doing it right but no one's talking about it and everyone's telling you it's wrong to do that so there must be like you know really like a like a, the sense of guilt and and all of that stuff do you have any thoughts on that on the, the emotional aspects of that. Of of using no, of, what we have children. access to to understand. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I yeah. think what happens is sexuality education gives children language for their experiences that they are already having. But when we don't have language, we can't speak to things. We can't talk about our discomfort around a particular aunt or uncle. Um, we can't talk about things that are happening to us because no one's invited that conversation and kids learn very fast, which conversations adults are allowing them to have and which conversations adults get upset about. And some children are desperate for conversation and they risk being upset at. And some children start the conversation because it gives them a sense of power because they know that's not going to go anywhere, but they like knowing that they can get a, a riled up response. I call this the squeaky toy. The child learns if I squeeze this toy, it squeaks. If I say these words, my parent freaks out. Look at this. It's reliable. It's dependable. I'm so powerful in a fairly mm. powerless environment. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you watched the movie Kindergarten Cup as well. There was a little boy that would say, <laughs> that would say that, you know, like, you know, boys have a penis. And then obviously, obviously all of the teachers freak out, you know, when, they, when he says that. But exactly what you just said now, you know, squeaky toy. Um, and why do we freak out at accurate language? where children are learning all other kinds of words which are super unhelpful mm. and does more damage. You know, not using penis and vulva actually creates more risk for children to be um, violated. And mm. just to circle back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, sex education doesn't stop children from being victims. It helps them realize and bring attention to when someone's trying to violate them. We can't make children responsible for the acts of other people. And even as anyone who's been violated, it's never because 
you didn't protect yourself well enough. What sexuality education does is it empowers children to speak up, up when they are feeling uncomfortable, when the violation is starting in the early stages, or as soon as they realize they're uncomfortable. Mm, yeah. And Casey, can you tell us, I mean, so so would a, would a client typically seek you out and say, this is something I need you to help me with? How do you help, you know, clients with with this topic of sex education? Sex education specifically, I get parents who come who want to navigate, you know, their young children's journeys and they don't want to perpetuate the harm that they experienced at home, um, whether that harm was violation, assault, or just the, the trauma of being shamed by society for being a sexual being and for having a body and for figuring out pleasure. Um, a lot of people come to me not for the sex, sex education, but because I provide counseling to people who are outside of the norm or the expected norm when it comes to their orientations, to their gender identities, to you know their relationship structures. And I think sexuality education provides an insight into that. But people come for a space to get information without being shamed for it. Mm, okay, cool. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense now. I was just trying to think if, if it's like very new age parents that are like very, you know, like obviously have a lot more insight, you know, that they decide actually they're going to be proactive about this. Or if it's, you know, related to some problem that they're experiencing, maybe their child has behavioral issues now, you know, and they kind of coming through and say, you know, we probably need to do this right now. Um, so, yeah. I do have parents who come because their children have been violated. Um, but because I don't work with children, I work with the parents. So the child can be referred to another professional to do the healing work on that side. And I help the parents create a home environment where these things can be spoken about without shame and help the parents work through their shame and their own guilt. When our child is a victim of violence, whatever kind, we feel like we failed as parents. Mm. And there's so much counseling necessary for people whose whose loved ones have been violated because you experience that violation in a very different way but you still experience it by proxy um you mm. know you watch your friend you watch your loved one you watch your child go through horrible like after effects it affects you too mm. and you feel all kinds of things in the fantasies about how you should have could have would have if you had known yeah I think, as you said, it's always the after effect. And um, some time ago, I'm not sure who recommended, you know, that I read this, but there was a book. It was, I think, it was called "The Courage to Heal." Uh, but you know, it was about, you know, like uh, survivors of of sexual abuse, and it was like the most one of the most powerful books I've ever, you know, read. And it was like these true, you know, like um, accounts of, you know, the victims and what they went through, and and it was about like the guilt that they felt because, you know, what the what the uh, the predator would do or the perpetrator would do is is they would tell them you can't tell your mommy or daddy you can't do this you can't and and inherently the child knows that this is wrong you know because of the harsh tones or the you know the secrecy and all of those things um, but you know as I was reading the book and even now you know when I think about it I, I just can't help but think that the parents should see a difference in their children in your experience is that how it normally works or do you find that that the children normally can deal with that for some time? For some time. Um, it's so independent on the child. It's so dependent on the context of the family, of the relationship with of the child to the different parents. Um, 
it depends on the family's relationship to the violator, whether that person is a child or an adult. It depends on so many factors because children don't want others to get into trouble. They don't want to get into trouble. They don't want bad things to happen to their loved ones. So a lot of things happen, which is why I developed the workshop series for parents and professionals who work with kids because I help people create relationships where this stuff is easier to talk about. So that at the first inklings, before bad things have happened, ideally, we can talk about just, you know, someone sitting too close to me and it feels uncomfortable. But unless we introduce that as a concept, as a topic, kids aren't going to talk about it. You know, yeah. like we have to, and secrets are a huge part of the, the workshops is what do secrets do? And they create shame. You know, things that can't be spoken about become shameful. And think about all the people, you know, who struggle to talk about mental health, who struggle to talk about the sex lives within their relationships. People in relationships to struggle to talk about their own sexual needs because of the shame of having them. <laughs> no, agreed. Yeah. And and also, I mean, in the in the age and the world that we live in, it's like so weird that I mean, and I mean, I was I was watching a video I think yesterday you know, on Facebook. It comes up with these recommended videos, and where there was a you know on on I think it's America's Got Talent or X Factor or something, one of those shows. There was a one judge, and with Mel B, Mel B, the Spice Girls. You know, she's also a judge, and he was like physically, you know, like just touching her on on camera and it was all accepted you know this is also in the you know in the times of Harvey Weinstein kind of Weinstein stuff and yeah the world is like quite 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 difficult and and you know it's almost like people got away with it for such a long time within families as well and not having you know that education to your children you know to explain how difficult the world is and how how bad it could be uh is 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 um yeah, it's it's a shame that we don't do it if we if we not. Yeah. And the thing that I've come across, I mean, people who've been through my workshops literally call it life changing because it changes the way they look at their own interactions and their own situations. I've had adults who, I mean, I only you know adults only come to the workshops, but I've had professionals who come and say, "Thanks to your workshops, I've been comfortable putting down boundaries with my own friends." These are professionals who work in the field and have struggled because no one in their training has articulated boundaries to such a small extent. And once you are aware of boundaries and once you watch the world around you, you can't unsee it, which is the beauty of consent culture, right? Rape culture is all about blaming the victim and assuming that rape never happened. Consent culture isn't the opposite. Consent culture is making sure that people are comfortable. And making sure that we are not making other people uncomfortable. And if we are, can that person tell us? And if someone's making us uncomfortable, can they tell us? And what do we do without telling them that they're making shit up and it's nonsense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Especially in the work scenario as well. I mean, I think, I mean, uh, I still remember I was doing that, that, you know, one of the courses at VITS and the one lady was working in a government type position and she was talking about how difficult it is, you know, to get promotions without, you know, doing favors as an example. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the reality of, 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 you know, the working environment in many work, you know, in many companies, which is sad. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that links into so many different intersections of privilege and power. So women are assumed to be um, 
promoted because they have done sexual favors. They've done something instead of their work being worthy of promotion. A lot of black people and people of color often speak about, I don't know if I was promoted for quota reasons or because my work is valued. You know, this, this, there's so many layers to these things. We can't separate misogyny from racism. Yeah, yeah. And again, tying it back to, you know, people, you know, the guilt, the emotional aspects, the, you know, the feeling of unworthiness, all of those things, you know, can't be good in any scenario. And it obviously has a knock-on effect, you know, with everyone. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a term called, I hope I'm not confusing my words around, Cumulative intersectional trauma or intersectional cumulative trauma. Yes, it's intersectional cumulative trauma, which talks about all the ways in which our positionalities, which is our different identities, what in the moments we hold more power or less power over others and how that is traumatizing because there's moments where we are traumatized by the way the world treats people of color or black people or people of Asian descent. Um, depending if it's, you know, South Asian, East Asian, you know, so many layers, the way people treat you based on your gender or their assumed, um, their assumptions of your gender, their assumptions of your sexual orientation. These are very traumatic and they are meant to be traumatic because they mean the way society currently functions is to keep people in their place, mm. which is why this trauma is a constant thing for so many people. And then long, until we acknowledge it, people think that they're going crazy. Hmm. And so, I mean, you, you've worked with so many amazing people, well, so many people, you know, like around this topic. Um, do, do you have a thought or do you have thoughts on, on why it's so difficult for us as a society to talk about those things? And I know it's difficult. So, so maybe the answer is because it's difficult, we can't talk about it. But, you know, topics like dying, you know, topics like sex education. And, you know, for me, the, the most baffling thing as well is that these are the things that will always happen. It's just, it's always going to be in your life. And yet those are the things that we decided we're not going to talk about. You know, we would rather talk about cooking and how do you be a good housekeeper and all of those kind of things rather than that stuff. My honest answer, which is quite, I suppose, taboo in itself, or pushes against a lot of people's feelings is if we were to talk about sex openly and honestly, we would have to talk about sex and power, and we would have to acknowledge how many people in our worlds are violators. And that is very difficult to do. Um, we would have to talk about the way our loved ones have not acknowledged our boundaries or have purposely violated our boundaries when we've spoken about them. And a simple example is insisting children kiss family members when they clearly don't want to. What are you teaching your child? We are teaching children that they are responsible for that person's feelings, regardless of their own sense of safety. No wonder we don't talk about it outside when we're older, if somebody's making us uncomfortable, because we've been told and conditioned our whole lives that other people's discomfort is more important to avoid than your own. Mm. And so many of my clients who are coming for counseling for a variety of whatever they're coming for, so often they say, but I would rather be uncomfortable then make that person have sad feelings. And that all comes down to go kiss this person. Don't you love them? Don't you want, you don't want them to be sad. Go kiss them. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, it impacts work relationships. It impacts everything. Yeah. And, and is that just, 
us as people not knowing where the boundaries are as well and forcing those those weird boundaries on other people and especially children and in almost like perpetuating that because then the children learn that that's actually acceptable behavior and and I should be doing that with my children now or, or something like that is that what that is the, the boundaries part a lot of it is people not being aware of the boundaries that are happening and of the messages that are being sent they think it's a simple hug what's the problem but it's never one simple hug everything we do and that forces people to do something against their will is never simple and it will have huge impacts later on yeah there's so much, and and that's why consent is so important you know i'm not saying don't greet people i'm saying greet people in a way that you feel safe mm-hmm. and being allowed to do that mm-hmm. why must you give your body up to some random family member that you don't like or never met before mm-hmm. yeah no agreed um, i know uh, like a like a family member because uh, you know like uh, I mean, like some of these things you only think about, you know, much later on in life. And I remember the one family member and he would always bite all of the girl children, though, on their cheek. Not, not like, you know, like playfully, well, playfully. But even as a child, I would think that's actually not right. You know, like, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes they would cry, you know, and I would think that's not right. But the other adults in the family seem to be OK with it. You know, and it was almost like they couldn't speak up or they didn't want to speak up or they didn't think that was inappropriate. But it's kind of like the the weird. And, and little Oliver was aware of the power dynamics and little Oliver didn't want to be in trouble for saying, why are you making the girls cry? Mm. They clearly don't want this. Mm. So you get socialized into letting other people violate others because you don't want to rock the boat. Mm. Yeah. And I think so much about consent is holding on to the fact that the, bo- the boat is already rocking. Mm. You are not rocking the boat by talking to the things that are happening. Mm. You're just not letting people ignore it anymore. Yeah. Well, while we go down that subject, do you, do you find, and this is more a, you know, opinion-based one, I suppose, do you find that as a society that family members almost cover up their own, you know, like, um, you know, like if there's sexual abuse in a, you know, in a family setting, it's almost like they, they kind of sweep it under the carpet rather than making a big deal out of it because, again, for that same reason that you said, it just rocks the boat. It's also very shameful. It's, it's very shameful to have to acknowledge that someone you respect has violated a child, even your child. Mm. A lot of, I mean, there's so many different ways that people respond to this, and a lot of the people who protect the family members don't believe the children or on some messed up way think the children are inviting this because that's what they were told when they were probably violated and no one protected them so many victims of childhood violation even adult violation but specifically childhood violation feel like somehow they could have stopped this somehow they were inviting it and children never invite this children don't know when they're being flirtatious it is the adult's job to hold boundaries and be healthy for the child. Yeah, I mean, that topic is just, yeah, it's just crazy. It's like almost, yeah, you know, you get abused because of what you are. And that's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You got abused, you're an abuser. That's, oh, there was an abuser around. Yeah. Absolutely. And, And I mean, we all know this cognitively until you've been violated. Mm. And everybody who's been violated often, well, not everybody, I can't, I've not spoken to everybody. 
everyone I've spoken to has to go through a process of, I feel like I imagine other assault victims have felt before they're able to put together, when I talk to adults, wait, hold on, maybe I was assaulted. Mm. So Casey, I mean, you just, you spoke about your workshop. So, so what would the, the workshops typically cover? Just so that we could get a sense of like, how does almost like a mature way of having, you know, the topic around sex education actually work? So the workshops work on multiple levels. We have the, the content level. So it's spread over four days because there's a lot of information and people need time to process so that we can come back and have feedback and move on to the next topic, which builds. It's a building process, kind of like a Lego. You have to create the base and then build the different parts. So in the first workshop, we talk about the easiest and hardest of the topics, which is bodies. The fact that we all have bodies how do we talk about bodies with our kids? How are we taught? Like, how did our families talk about bodies? How about body function? What is puberty? Even for nursery school children, they watch puberty happen in people around them. How do they understand it? So talking to children at an age-appropriate way about bodily functions, about changes in bodies. And we speak about gender as something that is a very body thing. We associate gender based on other people's bodies. We assign gender based on other people's genitals. We also talk about something really important, which is often left out, but 2% of the population is a huge amount of people where people are intersex, where biologically they are neither strictly male or female. And by not talking about this, we are invisibilizing and shaming 2% of the population. So one of I think one of the conservative estimates is one in 60 people. In my school grade in high school, there were 250 of us. I'm not good at maths, but I'm going to say there were at least, that means statistically, there were at least five people who are intersex. Mm. Now, it's not just visibly intersex in terms of genital, um, what they call genital ambiguity. It's also hormonally. It's chromosomally. It's do your external genitals match what is expected for your internal genitals. We've got a very famous intersex athlete who was outed before she even had the information, the media knew about her intersex status, which is Casta Semenya. Casta mm. Semenya is absolutely a woman, but because she has bio, like internal testicles instead of ovaries, because they develop from the same tissue. And that's part of the understanding is that we all develop from the very same tissue. Testicles don't develop separately to ovaries, the head of the penis and the head of the clitoris are developed from the exact same tissue. So we have to like understand how the development happens to understand how sometimes development isn't only in one direction, mm -hmm. right? So so many ways that people can have an intersex variation. There's about 40 variations in total. But I mean, I go on a whole five-minute video around intersex in the online version of the workshops. Okay. And that's me cutting down a whole lot of information. <laughs> that's to like, so just talking about bodies in general and everything that's silenced. Then people go home, they process this, they start thinking about how have their bodies been spoken about. They start thinking about how they're interacting with other people, and then we start on boundaries. So workshop two, we talk about boundaries. Now that we have a body, how do we how do we navigate the body? And then over the next two workshops, that workshop three and four, we speak about relationships, sexuality, 
And at the very end, we talk about how to talk about sex and safer sex. Mm. Okay. Cool. So as you can see, even in my workshop structure, sex and sexuality, well, sex and safer sex is the smallest bit. Mm. It's yeah. everything around it that mm. needs to be spoken about, really. Okay. That actually makes sense. But I think the way you've layered it as well actually makes a lot of sense. But it's almost like starting with 101. You know, like this is how it works, the bodies. <laughs> because you all, one would think, I mean, like when someone walks in there, it's like, no, you don't have to tell me about my body. But actually, maybe you do, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I love the approach. Um, you mentioned gender identity. Well, you didn't mention gender identity, but we touched on it, you know, kind of around that topic. But Gender identity, how does it relate, you know, to this topic? I'm, I'm guessing, obviously, there's, there's, you know, there's, um, you know, each person is different. And, and obviously, there's different things that that, you know, you need to cater for. But do you find that that lots of your work as well is coming from, you know, from from those type of issues as well? Or those type of? Yeah, ideas? yeah, absolutely. So in terms of my work as a counselor, a lot of the work I do, um, regardless of your gender identity, involves thinking about your gender identity. You know, how do you know that you're a man, Oliver? Because, I mean, uh, that's what I've been believed to be done from the beginning, you know. <laughs> Everything that I have, you know, is set up around being a guy, you know, and, you know, that goes from, you know, like how we perceive our organs to how we perceive the world, to your role in the world, uh, all of those kind of things. Um, yeah. Mm. Which I'm going to assume throughout your life you've never gone. I don't know if this is actually me. No, not really, to be honest. But so that means. Few, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Go In the it. past few years, it definitely started the conversation around maybe you can question it. You know, because I mean, like when you grow up in a society where it's it's just one or the other. It's like very easy to identify. As soon as someone opens Pandora bo Pandora's box and says, actually, maybe there's more options, you know, people start like, okay, maybe that does, you know, maybe I'm not that then. Um, mm. Yeah, there's so many layers to it. So people who, like you who were assigned male at birth or assigned anything, um, male or female at birth, and have grown up knowing that that's right. I am a boy. I'm a man. It matches. We call that cisgender because in Latin it means same gender. The gender you are assigned is the same gender as your experience. Um, I don't know why people think cis is a slur. It literally just means same. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas transgender is when your gender that you are, that you experience, that you feel, doesn't quite line up with what's assigned at birth. So we've got people whose gender lines up with the binary of male and woman as the only options. We have this compulsory binary that you mentioned. Um, so if someone is assigned male at birth but knows that they're a woman, they are a trans woman, whether or not they transition, whether that's socially, medically, you know, their identity as a woman means that they are on the other side, they have to cross the side because it's not the same as what is assigned to them. Then we've got people who are outside of the binary where they are either agender, non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer. There's so many spaces there where the gender binary doesn't fit. They're not either or. Mm. And, and it's, it's just this... how they experience the world. Okay, that's exactly what I was gonna ask. It's it's how they experience the world and how they, they feel. 
and that might not have anything to do with from a biological perspective, right? Um, you know, and then we have intersex people who might have perfectly typical genitals when they're born, but on a hormonal level, when they start puberty, they start the puberty of the so-called other gender. That is traumatizing if you don't know that that's a possibility. And it's a possibility for nearly 2% of us. That's Mm. a lot of people. Mm. Right? And because this is not something that we find out before puberty more often than not, because it's hormonal, you know? So there's so many different ways. By just talking about these as possibilities, we take away so much shame when people experience the world outside of how they're told they're going to. Mm. So in the in the 90s and probably the 80s, you know, like obviously the, you know, homosexual, you know, like from a – you know, gays and lesbians and, you know, that kind of, you know, we be, as a society, we, we became more aware of that. And and obviously now, you know, probably we, we're talking about the gender identity stuff. Do you have, a, do you have thoughts on what happened before that? I mean, was it, were people that were lesbians, as an example, were they just suppressed in society? Lesbians, gay people, queer people have always existed. If you go back into indigenous indigenous people's accounts, regardless of where they are indigenous to, you will find stories of queer people, people who are not cisgender and people who are not straight. Um, But there was space for them to exist because the society was structured in a different way. Um, Gays and lesbians have always existed. They have just had to figure out how to exist without being penalized for it or risk being penalized for it because in many countries, even today, being gay is criminal and you can get a life sentence or a death sentence for it. Now, I don't understand how there's a law against someone's existence. Mm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's many countries. It's not just one or two. (laughs) It's like many of the countries in Africa, you know, the Muslim-run ones or, yeah, Islam-related ones. Uh, Not only. I think um, even Mauritius, I think Mauritius doesn't allow that. No, um, unless what I was reading last night for some, I was reading um, African countries that legally protect queer people. And I think Mauritius was on the list of people who do not criminalize um, queerness in any kind of way, whether it's gender, sexual orientation. Ah, okay, cool. Maybe that that changed. There's eight. There's eight countries that don't criminalize it in some way okay. which is shocking yeah yeah oh, or maybe they don't promote same-sex marriages i don't know maybe that was what i read but i'm not sure which ones have same-sex marriage but yeah. in terms of they don't criminalize it yeah yeah in terms like you won't be thrown in jail or killed for being gay mm. there's eight countries in Africa, according to the article I read last night, that is horrendous. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, so coming back to the brief, in terms of um, we spoke about stigmas, I suppose, uh, in in some way. But are there anything else? I mean, around supporting a loved one, or um, you know, if, I, see, I'm, I'm not sure how how do you pick this up? You know, how do you know a loved one is struggling with this? You know, with with wanting more information around sex education. Or, I mean, I suppose with abuse, you're probably going to pick it up by some marker. But how would we support people around that if we did come across it? 
I think not shame them when they show an interest in the in the topic is how we support them. How do we know? It's very difficult because of the way of the taboos and the silencing and the shame. When How do we know when anyone needs sex education? How about we all do? How about we all need some sex education? Good answer. Um, how do we support people who are different, which might be part of your question, is talk about being open and supportive to other people who are different. Watch how you talk about people who are of a different class to you. Watch how you talk about people who are different gender to you. Who like how do you comment and respond to the stuff in the media, whether it's series or the news, where there are characters, if we're talking about series and movies, who are perhaps not straight or perhaps not cisgender. Your responses to those movies and those representations indicate whether or not you might be a safe person for this person to talk to. Mm. So many of my clients don't tell their family members because the family member has made one or more, often more, offhanded comment in the past that was incredibly homophobic or transphobic or racist. And they're like, well, I'm never coming out to you until they absolutely have to. So people people flag themselves as safe or unsafe constantly without even realizing it. Mm. And if you're wanting to support people, you have to put some effort into investigating your own internalized racism, homophobia, transphobia. And I bring racism into it because it's once you notice one oppression, you start to notice other oppressions. And we are all raised in a racist, homophobic, transphobic society. Mm. And we have to acknowledge that that has sunk into all of us. And it's a constant battle, regardless of your identity markers and your identity experience. You've been raised in this. There is shame to undo for all of us, constantly. Yeah, well said. I think I think that is, for me, in my mind, that is the one known fact is that, and I think whether you choose to acknowledge it or not is, you know, up to you, but that's your own self-development. But, you know, just knowing that's the world that we live in right now. And, you know, how do you, how do you firstly be that change? And secondly, how do you, you know, advocate for that change and, you know, change it for people around you, I think, uh, especially children. Because, uh, you know, it's sad when you see children that are, are so biased or prejudicial, you know, because that, you know, children shouldn't be like that, you know, but obviously it's the, you know, the environment and everything else, you know, where they learn that, which is sad. It is sad and linking very much to, you know, children learning from their experiences and their environment. The people who've come to my workshops and the parents who start doing the work with their kids and just start having conversations about bodies and maybe changing the ways in which they relate with their kids to a more honest human perspective rather than an authoritarian dict dict dictatorship element in their homes. No, you know, when they start having human relationships with their kids, their kids thrive. Their kids aren't ashamed of consent stuff because it's been made possible. And parents constantly tell me how much they learn about consent by watching their kids do it without shame. Hmm. When a child says, why are you touching my shoulder? It makes everyone awkward because we all know taboo, societal taboo says let people have access to your bodies regardless of your experience. But we also know that's how abuse happens. Mm. That, that's the thing that gives us hope, though. You know, if I watch my daughter and, you know, they, how they talk about, uh, you know, stuff at school and, and things like that, um, social justice, that's what they call it. And, and, 
uh, I think it gives you hope that that actually you can have these conversations and they're a lot more aware. Even mental health issues, you know, like teenagers seem to know that, you know, teenagers from this era seem to know that a, a bit better. You know, I'm feeling down at the moment. I'm not. But in, in the era, you know, in the era that I grew up in, I mean, like you would be loath to tell your parents or your teachers, actually, I'm feeling down this week, so I can't really do my work as best as I can. You know, you just, and why? Why would you be loath to do that, Oliver? Because of the shame and the guilt and the and the almost the anticipation of of um, of um, yeah of of a scolding or you know of, that's it yeah it's the fear mm. when we have environments that are fear based information is held from us when we have environments that are respect based we get to know who our children are mm. so. A lot of people confuse fear and respect. But if you're scared to tell someone who's supposed to be caring for you that you are in pain, whether it's mental pain or physical pain, that means this is not a safe relationship. Mm. Mm. You are not cared for in the way that you are told you are cared for. At least you're not experiencing it as care. Mm. But if a child or an adult or a partner or a sibling, or a child to adult, and a child to adult parent, obviously, um, is able to say, "I'm not feeling okay," without fear of punishment or some form of scolding. That's a respect-based relationship. Mm. That's a relationship where someone feels cared for because they're not scared to receive the care that comes after. I'm not feeling okay. I need to be left alone for a few hours, or I'm not feeling okay. Can you make me a cup of hot chocolate? Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. or a, a hot water bottle because there's physical discomfort. Like, that's what my workshops do is I create home environments and other environments where people feel more safe because they are more safe. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's actually a really nice, nice way of putting it as well, which I, which I really like. And do you find, I mean, with your patients, I mean, what makes them safe with you? Is it, do they hear about you from other other clients, I mean, because I mean, I would think like gender identity issues, um, you know, or patients wanting to speak about that. That's quite, um, yeah, you know, it must be quite difficult to find, you know, therapists that can speak about that maybe, or that understand you. Do you find that, do you find that uh, patients speak, you know, reach out to you via word of mouth or do they just find you? I think in the beginning, because I started practicing in 2013, it was a lot of word of mouth. Um, And also on my website, I would talk about how I offer counseling for people who are, um, you know, in the LGBTQ community or queer in some way. Um, Over the years, I am always amazed at how people come to find me, but communities do share safe resources. So... A lot of the time I can't take on clients because they're friends of a current client that I'm seeing because mm. the, the circles can get really small. Mm. Um, but people come to me for two reasons, queer folk specifically. One is they know that I work and I am understanding and affirming of queer issues, whether that is being like being different in some way from the norm. So maybe you're not straight. Maybe you're not cisgender. Maybe you're not monogamous. And they know that I'm educated and affirming on the topic, and therefore they come and talk about those things. The second reason people come to see me is because they fit into these identities and they know that I'm not going to say, well, you know, 
if you were just monogamous, your problems would go away. You know, if you just try to be straight, then your problems won't go away. And unfortunately, there are professionals who do that. So they come with their identities, but their identities aren't what we talk about unless it becomes something they want to talk about. You know, how often have you gone to a therapist? I'm assuming you've been. And Oliver, they were like, well, maybe just because you're a cisgender heterosexual man, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. That Has be... anyone ever said that to you? No, not really. <laughs> uh, I have been in therapy, though. But yeah, it hasn't happened. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of my clients have been through that. And a lot of the work we do is, you know, debriefing the violence of that. Mm. Unintentional violence, we hope, by the professionals, but violence nonetheless. That is traumatic. Mm. Yeah. You know, you are sick because you are, the reason you are upset is because you are sinful. You are a problem. Your existence is a problem. And that is incredibly traumatic and violating. Mm. Yeah. So people come not to, to, they know that they, or they've heard that they're not going to get that with me. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, Casey, do you find that with your with the clients that you work with, or this topic around sex education, that um, that you there's there's other practitioners that you work with, like in a multidisciplinary oh, yeah. kind of setting? Yeah, I'm part of a network of psychologists who work with queer issues. I'm in like multidisciplinary teams with doctors, physios, okay. um, OTs. Who you know, I'm trying to get another psychiatrist on board. Okay. You know, people who who are aware of these things and where clients feel safe to go to because clients are people. Mm. They have to feel safe with their doctors and their medical professionals in order for them to get any any better. Mm. Yeah, we were talking just before the show and we were talking that you recently got um, your uh, qualification as a sexologist as well, which uh, mm. congratulations. Have you found Thank that you. have you found that that, qualification has helped you in any way or has it been more credibility around this topic a little bit of both i've been studying for the sexology degree since 2010 um so it's not a degree it's a certification i've been studying towards a sexology certification since 2010 just by getting as much information and as I, as I can on human sexuality and how to work with human sexuality and sex therapy in the room. Um, the sex, the psychosexologist certification that I've got from the European Federation of Sexology is a multidisciplinary one. There's a lot of sexual medicine that I had to learn for this, um, which plays a huge role in sexual function, regardless of your identities. If you're taking blood pressure medication, if you're taking cholesterol medication, if you're taking certain antidepressants, anti-anxieties, it is going to, if you're taking um, birth control, it is going to impact your sexual function. And it's important that I know about it so that I can refer you correctly to see which medical professional can be most helpful, you know? Mm. Okay, that's great. So has it, it's, it's nice to know that I'm a legitimate psychosexologist. Mm. Um, because the, it's not a psychosexologist is a protected term in Europe, which is where my certification comes from. But sexologist, unlike psychologist, is not a protected title. Anyone can use it. Doesn't matter who you are and what your degrees and your background is. So I've only started using sexologist in my titles since I got my certification because I, you know, it's just the kind of person I am. I want to have the the, the certificate to say yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I was telling someone else yesterday in a meeting, 
that your psychologist um, is not quite a protected term. In South Africa it is, everyone seems to know that, but I think in the US it's not. I mean, you can be a social psychologist and I don't think there's a, you know, you, I don't think there's, it's not, it isn't protected in any way. I mean, you just can mm -hmm. come up with the title. Um, and well, social psychology is a field of psychology in terms of intervention, academic literature, academic research. Um, and a lot of what we know about how people interact in group environments, which is everyone, you know, home environments, work environments, well, comes from social psychology. Mm. So a lot of people do, they can be a registered psychologist or they are a research psychologist and they work with social psychology. They are technically mm. social psychologists and okay. they can be legitimate. <laughs> and in but I see what you're saying. In, yeah. in, yeah, in South Africa, it's okay. not a, it's not a, you can't offer a service as a professional, as a social psychologist. Okay. But as, as, as someone with a psychology degree who works in psych social psychology, it is not incorrect to call yourself a social psychologist as far as I understand mm. because it's the area that you focus on. Um, people have their PhDs in it. Okay. I haven't come across that before, but yeah, I'll look out for that. I just saw it somewhere and actually we had someone on the show. And in in Germany and in the US, she used a certain title, but it had psychologists in it. And she said, you know, I'm not really a psychologist, but you know, this is a title I normally use. So we introduced her differently, I think, in the show. Uh, mm -hmm. It was definitely one of the guests. Um, but coming back to you, to the topic, is there any books or resources or tools that you normally recommend to your clients other than obviously your workshops and your courses? It depends on what they're looking for. Um, if they're looking for age-appropriate content for sex education to talk to their, their children or their, their loved ones, there are the international guidelines that are research-based um, from the United Nations. World Health Organization has one from 2010, but then they collaborated with the United Nations for the 2018 version that's out. United Nations has actually come up with a lot of sex education uh, literature, guidelines, documentation, support. It's all research-based, internationally researched. Some of it's African research, European research, all over the place. Um, then there are other service providers um, who have a social media presence. So I often recommend um, people like Melissa Carnegie, who runs Sex Positive Families, um, there is a annual sex education conference called SLAM, um, which is, stands for Sexuality Liberators and Movements and Movers. And it is the most amazing annual conference that talks about the different elements of sex education that gets ignored. Um, there's so many, like, so there's lots of different places. If you're looking for books to, to read, there's a list of books that you can read with your kids. Um, there's, there's just so much support out there when people are looking for it. In terms of support and resources for being queer, if you are trans, there's a few support spaces um, for trans people to meet up and talk to other people because a lot of trans people haven't met other trans people and feel quite alienated and isolated and, and kind of like they're the only freak in the village, which is very seldom the case until they meet new people and they realize it's just, you know, normal human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know of any spaces for for sexual orientation support spaces, but I'm sure that they do exist. Yeah. And that's there's also a support group. 
that a colleague of mine runs. There's a support group that he runs with another parent for parents of trans and gender diverse children. So there is, and that's an online and in-person support space. There are spaces out there. It just depends on when, if you're ready for it. Um, and yeah. Yeah, that's the beauty of the world that we live in as well, you know, in terms of the online world. I mean, you can find your community, it doesn't matter what that community is, you know, and you can be connected, even if it's not physical. So I think that's, mm. that's, that's really cool. Um, and ethical considerations, you know, around working the, around the topic of sex education, or gender identity issues? Gender identity issues, there's no ethical issues um, that I've come across and I, that I can think of outside of my client being abused in some way or being denied care um, from another medical professional without valid reason. Um, and valid reasons would only be because a medication needs to be changed first because it interacts with the hormone treatment. Um, this hormone treatment isn't new. Uh, cis men have taken testosterone for years, cis women have been taking testosterone and estrogen for years. Menopause is a thing that didn't come mm -hmm. up recently. There is medical treatment for it. This People think this treatment is brand new, and it's really not. It's been around forever and ever and ever. Mm. Um, and it's been used on cisgender populations for just as long. In terms of sex education, some of the ethical issues I come across is when children, when I do talks at schools, because I, I do go into schools and I talk with the parents and the kids and the teachers, when kids disclose that they are experiencing um, discrimination, bullying, um, violence from peers and teachers around their sexual orientation and their gender um, and their parents. And then if it's anonymized, I have to work with the school because they often have an idea of who the child is because it needs to be reported. Any kind of abuse needs to be reported. And if the child is telling me anonymously, I'm need to report it um, and we have to find out. So that's the ethical gray areas. How do we find out who this child is and give them support, not just from a reporting perspective, because any kind of child abuse needs to be supported, re reported, even if it's only suspected child abuse. Um, and beating your child because they're not straight is absolutely child abuse. Mm -hmm. um, finding out that kids have been exposed to porn by an adult, that's child abuse. Like there's all the levels of reporting that comes up when you do this info, this sex education, you're giving kids language for stuff that's already happening in their worlds, and then they can talk to you about it. And had they had this information five years ago, six years ago, maybe this interaction that they're telling you about could have been prevented because another caring adult who believes the child would have stepped in when the child spoke up mm. because the child knew that they could. And that's the difference. Sex education. That's what it does. It lets children know who they can talk to and that they'll be believed. Mm. Nice. And a naive question, but who do you report this to? Um, Form 22s goes to SAPS okay. and uh, social development where necessary and Department of Education where necessary if it's a teacher. Okay. So the police service or the social workers or the teachers, and then the teachers know how to escalate basically from there? Not even the teachers, the Department of Education. Oh, Department of Education. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so there isn't a defined process. I mean, like you'd have to go onto their websites or, you know, mm -hmm. with the police service, it's easy. I mean, just call their number or go into a station. There's a form you have to fill out. It's a form okay. 22, okay. which is a form that documents abuse. 
Um, and then you have to have evidence of submitting it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the, all of those applies in South Africa and, you know, for all of the, you know, we've started in the UK with some practitioners, but I don't know how it works in the UK. You know, probably just have to look at that process. Um, but normally, there's, there's some way that you can report it with some government, you know, agency um, mm-hmm. around that stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Casey, anything, I mean, obviously, can we try to put a brief together around the topic? And, you know, like I said, from the first time I, I met you, I mean, I always thought it's an interesting topic and not many people, or in my world anyway, you know, not enough people are probably talking about it. And I thought, you know, we definitely have to, you know, talk about it in some way on the show. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you thought would be absolutely critical to the discussion? I think we need to encourage adults to get sex education before something happens to them, um, to their children. I think we have to be a bit humble and realize that we don't, most of us did not receive sex sex education that helped us as adults, definitely didn't help us as young people. So we have to be humble and go, well, if we don't know what sex education is, because we struggled and had to figure shit out on our own, figure stuff out on our own, then how are kids managing it today? Yes, they've got access to all this information, but outside of a conversation where somebody breaks it down and explains it and the child gets to explain their understanding of it, outside of those processes, all this information that children get is contradictory, it's confusing, and it's overwhelming. Having access to information doesn't mean we understand what we are seeing. Yeah, we seem to do really well at- My big thing is, is adults. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, Karen. I think the big thing is is that as adults, we would all benefit from getting some good sexuality education, even if we're not parents. If you are a human being who's in a relationship that involves sex in some kind of way, sexuality education that is accurate and comprehensive and involves relationship dynamics, we all benefit from this, regardless of how old we are. And our circles benefit from it because then our friends will find out about it because we'll start bringing in boundaries. Like it makes a ripple effect. Mm, agreed. Yeah, I was going to say, um, so we we seem to do a good enough job at getting certifications for everything else. You know, mat- you know, finishing school, getting your driver's license, um, all of those things. But nothing around self-care like and, and, and navigating us as a person. We don't seem to have any certifications around that. You know, what makes us a good, you know, person in society, all of those things, you know, we seem to bypass. So which is which is really cool. But I love the work you're doing. I love the topic. I love um, you know, the fact that you're helping so many people around this this topic as well. Um thanks so so much for everything that you do. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show as well. Um it was an absolute blast. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. Yeah.